Let us pray together. Oh God, our Father, today, what a somber subject and such a terrifying thought is held out before us in these words of our Lord. Even people who aren't concerned about their sin are assured that they could be forgiven if they needed to be, and yet here your Son speaks of a kind of sin that cannot and will not be forgiven. And we know that beyond you there is no court of appeal, there's no overturning, there's no bypassing, there's no escaping. So we must bow and listen humbly. For this we need your help, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The unpardonable sin. Those words have filled many hearts with fear, with terror, and robbed many of sleep. The very description of it is enough to make your blood run cold. The thought of a sin that cannot be forgiven, as Jesus says, in this age or in the one to come. On the other hand, you have the spectacle of today's brand of keyboard warrior, chest-beating atheists trying very hard to commit the unpardonable sin just to show how much they're not afraid of God and instead instead showing how much he's on their minds. But we must understand what this is our Lord is speaking of. He singles out, our Lord does, as unforgivable, and he pins it on that generation as having committed that sin. And it is connected with the fall of Jerusalem. So let's come at it thoroughly today by understanding the Holy Spirit's ministry in the Gospel of Matthew. First then, let's look at Roman numeral one, the blessings of the Holy Spirit by which I mean particularly his blessings in the ministry of Christ as we see it in the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to note three such blessings, beginning with the blessing of prediction, capital letter A, prediction, the Holy Spirit predicting uh, the ministry of Christ the King. We see that actually in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus says in Luke 24, 44, he says he had told them all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. He says they must be fulfilled. And that's the whole of the Old Testament. He says the whole of the Old Testament points forward to him. So in explanation of that, Christ's apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, speaking of the Old Testament prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you. He says they made careful searches and inquiries, inquiring to know what time or kind of time the Spirit of Christ within them, the Spirit of Christ within them was predicting as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So he says that the Old Testament is the predictions of the Spirit of Christ, predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And he writes again in his second letter, 2 Peter 1, 20 through 21, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes by one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by the will of man, but men being moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So Jesus says that the whole of the Old Testament points forward to him. And we know that in John 5, he talks about Moses specifically and tells these Pharisees who prided themselves as disciples of Moses that when they stood in God's judgment room, they would find a witness to testify against them. And that witness would be Moses because Jesus says he wrote of me. Now what we see in Peter's words is that Moses, David, Daniel, 
Isaiah, Jeremiah, all who prophesied of Christ, they all did it moved by who? By the Spirit of God. So this testimony of theirs to Jesus Christ was a testimony of the Spirit of God to Jesus Christ. He not only hovered over creation at the beginning, the first moment of creation, but then he proceeded, proceeded to create a body of witness beforehand, pointing forward to and finding its fulfillment in Christ. So we need to look at the whole of the Old Testament as a ministry of the Holy Spirit pointing to Christ. Prediction. Secondly, the blessing of preparation for Christ's kingly ministry. The Spirit prepared Jesus Christ for that ministry. We see it first in his conception Number one, his conception, Matthew 1, verses 18 and 20. I remind you that Matthew writes, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. So she had not had sexual relations, but she was pregnant. And the cause of this pregnancy was the creative work of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Lord Jesus Christ in his divine nature is eternal and unchangeable, but his human nature is created and prepared, created and prepared for the indwelling, for, for becoming part of one of the, the person of Jesus Christ, united with his divine nature in one person. But that human nature was of the Holy Spirit. Again, verse 20 says, An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the one who's been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So his very human nature is prepared for him by the Holy Spirit of God. Having predicted him and pointed forward to him through all Old Testament history. In fact, having pointed to this specific virgin conception and birth. Where? In Isaiah 7.14, a virgin is pregnant and will bear a son. This is that son, predicted by the Holy Spirit, conceived by the Holy Spirit. So first, his conception. Secondly, his designation. His designation, that is to say, he is pointed out as the Messiah by the Holy Spirit. Where is that? Matthew 3.16. Jesus had come to John for baptism, you remember. And we read, and after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming upon him. So there's a visible representation of the Holy Spirit coming down on God the Son and abiding on him. Now that was very significant to John, as we read in John one thirty-three, the Apostle John's Gospel, John the Baptist says, And I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, The one upon whom you see the Spirit descending, same word Matthew uses, katabino, descending and abiding on him, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So, John knew that he would know the Messiah by the descent of the Spirit and dwelling on him. And of course, that makes perfect sense in the whole of Old Testament because, uh, remind me, what does the word Messiah, Messiah and Christ mean the same thing? And they, they mean, Hebrew word, Greek word, they mean what now? Anointed. Now, anointed with oil, with like olive oil. Well, olive oil was used in the Old Testament as a symbol, yes, but a symbol of the reality of the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus would be anointed, but not with physical oil, but with the Holy Spirit. And so that is exactly what is seen here at his baptism. So the Holy Spirit, having predicted him through the, all the Old Testament, conceives his human nature, 
comes and designates, designates him as the Messiah at his baptism. And then thirdly, we see the preparation in the temptation. Number three, temptation. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, the immediate sequel to the baptism in Matthew's gospel. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now we all remember Jesus was tempted in the wilderness by the devil, but do we always remember that he was led there by the Holy Spirit? He was there not on a whim and not by accident and not by getting lost uh, because uh, he was a man and couldn't take directions. It wasn't that at all. It was deliberately the Holy Spirit who led him out into the wilderness and led him out for the express purpose of being tempted by the devil. Why? Because that was part of his preparation. Because that is part of what designates him as fit to be the ruler of the Messianic kingdom. What ruler had failed that same test? Well, that would be Adam. Adam, the first Adam, and Jesus is called in Scripture the last Adam. The first Adam indeed was tested not in a wilderness, but in a sumptuous garden. And he failed badly and quickly. But Jesus, starving, sent into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit was tempted and passed. So that's his preparation for ministry. We see the prediction, the preparation, and then thirdly, the presentation of Christ's kingly claims and his kingly ministry. And first we note its plenitude. I didn't inflict on you to try to write that word. I just wrote it for you. Plenitude simply means fullness, but I needed a word that started with P. So plenitude, uh, he is full of the Spirit in his ministry. Matthew 12, 18, I hope you understand. Behold, my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my Spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. And it's that presence of the Holy Spirit abiding in his ministry, not come and go as with the kings and judges of old, but coming and abiding on him that marked him as Messiah because it was often predicted that the Messiah would be indwelt and filled by the Holy Spirit permanently and that his, his reign would be a time of outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I remind you of Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, where we read, Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Jesse was David's father, so this is the Davidic Messiah. And of that Messiah, Isaiah writes, the spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. Now, judges and prophets, the Holy Spirit rushed on them. He came and he went, but not Messiah. He rested on him. And then these aspects, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. So that is the mark of the Messiah, permanent resting of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 42.1, just quoted, says the same. I've put my spirit upon him. That's the servant of God, the Messiah. And so, uh, remind you, as Phil pointed out in his Sunday school class, Joel 2.28, about the age of uh, the Messianic kingdom, it will be afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. This is new. This is something that was not experienced during the Old Testament dispensation. It would be part of the kingdom of the Messiah that the Spirit of God would be poured out on all. So, this very presence of the Holy Spirit resting and abiding on Him in His ministry designated Him uh, as the Messiah. And then secondly, also His power. Number two, His power. Matthew 12, 28. 
Now remember, this is a, a point Jesus made very strongly to them when they, they um, exuded this terrible idea that the reason why he could do these things is by the power of Beelzebul. And Jesus says, well, in fact, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So now Jesus' point is that demons are stronger than people, and people don't have the strength, just unaided mortals don't have the strength to cast out uh, demons. And Satan wouldn't cast out demons because that would divide his kingdom and bring it crashing down. I I remember an actor decades ago, uh, you all probably would know his face, I don't recall his name, Uh, not a big one, but a character actor. And and you know actors are always looking for work. It's it's not quite like our nine to fives. And if they get a job, normally they'll take it if it looks like a good job. But he said, he was a Christian, an actual Christian. (laughs) Imagine that. And he said that he was offered roles where he would play the devil, and he turned it down, not because he was playing the devil, but because in these scripts, a mere mortal would outsmart the devil. And he said, I just couldn't do that, because nobody can outsmart the devil. He knew something that a lot of people don't seem to know today. But Jesus knew it, and he said, so, if you see that I cast out devils, and I'm stronger than Satan, I'm able to bind him, then that is the sign of the coming of the Spirit of God. And he says that I do it by the Spirit of God. So his ability to seemingly effortlessly do what men couldn't do for themselves or for others, that ability was given by the Spirit of God, and that ability attested him as the fit king of the Messianic kingdom. So you see, all the Bible and all the Gospel of Matthew up to this point is the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God pointing to whom? Pointing to Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the Messianic King. So all this is not some little uh, uh, difficult to pick out little strain. This is a big sound. This is a big theme. This is a dominant color. The ministry of the Holy Spirit specifically pointing towards Christ. And so they come and to this signal display of the Spirit's power in casting out demons, they say, oh yes, we can explain that. That's the power of Satan. That is a huge, huge thing they're saying. So let's talk about that. Number two, that's what Jesus calls the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. I want us to understand it. The blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And first let's come at it in terms of interpretation. Just asking, what is it? What is Jesus referring to? What isn't it? We want to make sure we've got a grasp of what he's talking about because it's something that we don't want to miss. Now, first, I would like to pick out some theological notes here, things that I don't want us to miss as we go through this section. One of those is the centrality of Christ. The centrality of Christ. Remember, what has Jesus said? He said, who's not... He who is not with me is against me, and he who doesn't gather with me scatters. Me, me, me. Well, it's he to whom the Spirit points. This ministry is the ministry of the Holy Spirit through Jesus. So now, are are the Pharisees, to their minds, are they saying anything about the Holy Spirit? Well, no, to their minds, they're not. The Holy Spirit is not in their sentence. Do you follow me? They say... um, the power by which he does this is the power of Satan. They don't say Holy Spirit. But the fact is, 
that the power by which he does it is the power of the Holy Spirit. So in attributing that power to Satan, they are attributing the Holy Spirit to Satan. They are saying he is Satan. Because his ministry hinges on Jesus. What Jesus does is a ministry of the Holy Spirit. What the Holy Spirit does, he does to attest to Jesus, to point to Jesus, to authenticate Jesus, to glorify Jesus. And so when they take that and they put that to the credit of, of, uh, of Satan, well, then they have committed an unpardonable sin. They have uh, changed the Holy Spirit's identity into Satan or tried to do as the Holy Spirit points to Christ. So secondly, notice too, the deity and the distinct personality of the Holy Spirit. Now blasphemy, sometimes that word can be used of slandering men, but generally blasphemy is used of slandering God, of saying untrue, uh, lying, vicious things about God. And so this, to be a blasphemy, is not just a blasphemy against a thing, and certainly not a blasphemy against an impersonal force, but against a person and a person who has the dignity of God. Uh, the enormity of the crime is due to the majesty of the person in part. This is God they've blasphemed in blaspheming the Holy Spirit. But also notice, remember, I've pointed out to you in the past that there are heretics who, who believe that God is one person, one person who sometimes operates as father, sometimes as son, sometimes as Holy Spirit. This is modalism or, or United Pentecostal Church. And this is one of the many verses that rules that out. Because obviously he's distinct from the son. Because Jesus says that whoever blasphemes the son, it might be forgiven him, but not he who blasphemes the Holy Spirit. Clearly not the same person, right? So they're distinct persons, yet the Holy Spirit is fully God. And we also want to notice that the Father does reserve a sin for which no atonement is possible. If atonement were made for it, it would be forgiven. It can't be forgiven, so no atonement must be made for this sin. This sin is in a special category by the Father's designation. So those are my theological notes. Now let's make a special note of contextual notes. And I just remind you that throughout all of Jesus' ministry, the Spirit has been attesting him. The Spirit has been pointing to him. Just remember all this. The Spirit conceived of Jesus. He was spirit conceived. He was spirit predicted. He was spirit anointed. He was spirit guided. He was spirit empowered. So the Spirit's ministry centers on the person of Jesus Christ. And God has done this for however long? Well, he's done it through all the ages of the Old Testament pointing to Christ, and then through all the life and ministry of Christ. And God is very, very long-suffering. We see that again and again in Scripture, don't we? Don't we often see in the Old Testament the phrase that God sent the prophets, his servant the prophets, and what do we read? Again and again we read. He sent them again and again, warning the people, predicting God's judgment, begging them to come back to God. And again and again, we see situations like Moses imploring God for mercy and long-suffering and God giving it. And we see Amos doing the same and God gives it. But there's a limit. God is long-suffering, but there's a limit. God is far more patient than we have any right to demand that he be. We have no right to demand patience from God. And yet he is very patient. He's very long-suffering. But there comes an end. 
Noah preaches about the coming judgment, but the storm comes. And so Jesus preaches, but Jerusalem falls because of their rejection of Jesus Christ, because of their rejection. Remember the preaching that started the Gospel of Matthew. You remember when, uh, when John the Baptist came on the scene and he was preaching in Matthew chapter 3. And what did he preach of? He preached of coming judgment, and particularly he preached of coming judgment on the Pharisees. He says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and seeing the Pharisees and Sadducees, these same religious leaders, he says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Wrath is coming. God is being long-suffering, but there is an expiration date. So he says to them to repent. And don't say, you can, the, you can just say that Abraham's your father and you'll be okay, as if to say, I have Christian parents, I had a Christian upbringing, and that'll do anything for you. God can raise sons of Abraham out of these rocks. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree that doesn't bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And he says that the Messiah will baptize with fire in judging his enemies. The winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Yeah, God has been very patient. And this is not the first time they've floated this blasphemous idea, but they have run the patience out. They have gone too far. So, with that context in mind and that doctrinal truth in mind, let's come down now, number three, to some analytical notes. And I first want to talk with you about what this sin isn't. And this is not an exhaustive list, but I'm going to talk about nine things it isn't. Nine things it isn't. And the first thing that I need to say, the first truth is, it isn't just sin. This isn't just any sin. Uh, people might say, well, all sin isn't forgivable unless you repent. Oh, but, but Jesus says this is a sin that couldn't be forgiven. Jesus isolates this sin as being sui generis in a, in a category all of its own. So it's not simply sin. Secondly, it is not some unspecified really bad sin. Now, for one thing, all sin is really bad. This is something we need to understand. All sin is really bad. Why? Because it's against God. And so what we think of as the smallest sin is still sin. We call it a peccadillo, a little, a little offense. But in the sight of God, it's enormous. A single sin deserves God's judgment of hell. All sin is really bad. And so we trivialize sin if we say, oh, but there's a really, really bad sin. It's not because of its being really, really bad. The notion that this is a really, really bad sin harms in two directions. In one direction, if somebody says, well, this unpardonable sin is a really, really bad sin, and I haven't committed it, so what does that mean? I'm not that bad, <laughs> right? If, if the, the thing about the unpardonable sin is it's a really, really bad sin, maybe it's sexual, maybe it's a crime against life or, or something like that, but I haven't done that, what does that mean about me? It means, well, I'm really not that bad. And so it can engender pride in us, which obviously is nothing Jesus is out to do. But then a second harm that that idea can cause is despair. If somebody concludes that this is a non-specified really bad sin, and he has a tender conscience, unlike the first guy, and he's aware that he's a bad sinner, and he, can, he identifies, she identifies his sin, her sin, with that sin, and then reads Jesus saying, can never be forgiven, then what effect does that have? Utter despair. There's not even any point in my praying. There's not even any point in my trusting Jesus. There's not even any point in my seeking after God because my really bad sin cannot be forgiven. 
But this is not some unspecified, really bad sin. Jesus says exactly what this sin is, as I'll show you shortly. It's not just anything. It is one particular thing. Thirdly, it is not dying in unbelief. Now, this is what some Christians have said, well, the unpardonable sin is dying in unbelief. Some Christians have have tried saying, well, nobody goes to hell for sin. You go to hell for unbelief, which is an unbelief a sin. I believe so. I believe so. So, no, that, that's not the answer. Uh, for one thing, that would mean that everybody who dies in unbelievers committed the unpardonable sin, which clearly is not what Jesus is saying. But even more to the point, why is he talking to them about it? They're still alive. <laughs> they haven't committed it, but he's saying they have. So, it's not dying in unbelief. Fourth, it is not doubt or denying Christ. That is not the unpardonable sin. How do I know it's not doubt? Well, what did chapter 11 start with? John the Baptist having some struggles. Did Jesus write him off and tell him he was beyond redemption? No. He exhorted him and he said, blessed is he who doesn't stumble in me. So it's not doubt. Is it denying Christ? Can you think of anyone who denied Christ and was forgiven? Peter did. Yep, Peter did. But he was forgiven. So it's not that. Fifth, it's not resisting the Holy Spirit. How do I know that? Because everybody does that. (laughs) Every Christian has resisted the Holy Spirit before conversion. And that's not the unpardonable sin. Sixth, it's not blasphemy per se. How do I know that? Because I know someone who said he was formerly a blasphemer, but he was shown mercy. That is the Apostle Paul. 1 Timothy chapter 1. I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy, he says. So it's not just blasphemy. Seventh, and I want to say this very emphatically, it is not criticizing charismaticism. Well, they've tried that, haven't they? Have you not heard that? The great warning is that when you start pointing out that their miracles are phony miracles and their teaching is false doctrine, well, beware of, baptizing, of, of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Saying that fake miracles are fake is not blaspheming the Holy Spirit. What did they do? They said that real miracles, note, that they didn't even try to deny. I'll never tire of pointing that out. They couldn't deny his miracles. They just missourced them. They sourced them in Satan and not in the Holy Spirit. So, no, it's not criticizing charismaticism and pointing out fakery and error. Eighth. It is not a sin a Christian can commit, contrary to a book called The Foundations of Pentecostal Theology. I find this to be one of the most irresponsible sentences I've read in a theology. This sin could be committed by a Christian as well as an unsaved person if he's not careful. That's a quotation. This sin could be committed by a Christian if he's not careful. So it's like something that you can just stumble into. I wonder what they even mean by that. Because the consequence is if you sin this, then you're not forgiven. Ever. You can never be forgiven. Is Jesus painting this as something that somebody stumbled into? I don't think so. Is he painting it as something that a believer has done? Well, no. (laughs) Absolutely not. I'll be talking more about that in just a moment. But the very point of being a Christian, as you see it again and again in the New Testament, is when you trust in the Lord Jesus, fresh in my memory here, I always need to be reminded this, I really do. How many of your sins are forgiven? Well, just the past ones, right? 
Well, just the ones of your early Christian life? All, all sins. But if all my sins have been forgiven, and then I commit one that's unforgivable, then all my sins weren't forgiven. So it's, it, it is, it's a nonsense statement. And uh, as I say, I will return to that in just a Well, I'll return to that right now. Number nine, it is not a sin likely to be committed by anyone who is terrified that he might have committed it. <laughs> it is not a sin likely to have been committed by anyone who's terrified that he committed it. Uh, and you just observe, they don't show any, they don't bat an eyelash to, to Jesus saying this. But it isn't something that an undecided person um, does and then later regrets somewhere down the trail while, while he's still forming what he believes and he toys with this idea and then later abandons it. But, oh, too bad, you can't ever be forgiven it. This is where someone has settled, as I will show you. It is, it is a, an end position not an on-the-way position. This is a final position. This is where someone has settled. And it is the mark of his irretrievability, not simply the cause of it. That is to say, the way that one could know that this is an ir- a reprobate person, an irretrievable person, is if he has committed the baptism, I'm sorry, he's committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That marks him as being irretrievable. That marks him as being reprobate. And these blasphemous words, I will show you, demonstrate where the heart has settled. Not a a stopping place, but the stopping place. The final destination of the heart. So, let's consider now, letter B, what this sin is. Mark sums up what Matthew shows. Matthew shows the same thing, but Mark says it in so many words. Turn to Mark chapter 3, and Mark shows us exactly what this sin is. Mark chapter 3 and verse 22, the exact same incident Matthew does, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark adds an, an interpretive point, an editorial comment. And this is not like a MacArthur footnote, and it's not like a Pastor Dan sermon. This is the Holy Spirit. Speaking, This is inerrant. So, and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. So now drop your eyes to 28. Jesus says, truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, And what do you read next? Because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. That's what the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. Taking the miracles of Jesus Christ and saying that the power by which he did those miracles was the power of Satan. So you see, it's a very specific sin. It is a very specific sin. So let's describe it. This blasphemy, first of all, is a settled position. Not something you're toying with, but it's settled. This is the second time that Matthew said the Pharisees said this. In Matthew 9.34, the Pharisees were saying, well, actually, that's in perfect tense. They kept saying, he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. And Mark 3.30 speaks of it using the word, the imperfect tense verb again. This is something they kept saying, not something they said once and then said to themselves, Oh, but that's stupid. That's stupid. No, that's not going to be our, 
That's not going to be how they explain this. We have got to do better than that. No, this is what they kept saying. This was their story. This was their song, <laughs> denying the Savior all the day long. I mean, this is, this is, where, they, this is where they came down. It's a settled position. <laughs> Sorry about that. And secondly, in the, it is in the face of a clear and full demonstration of Christ. Not just the first they'd heard of Christ and they said this, but they saw Christ, saw Christ, saw Christ. Where do I get that from? 11.4. When John sends his messengers saying, are you he who's coming or shall we wait for another? What does Jesus say? You go back and tell John what? What you see and hear. In other words, anybody following his ministry was seeing these things all the time and hearing these things all the time. And is that true of the Pharisees? Yeah, we've seen it. They're dogging him. They're following him around. They're there when his disciples are eating in a wheat field. They're there when he goes to synagogue. They're, they're watching him. So they see all these things. They see all these things. They hear him preaching. We've already seen in Matthew a number of times where they say something and Jesus shuts them down. He has an answer that just leaves them, their mouths moving and no sounds coming out, you know, because he has absolutely shut them down. And what effect has that had on them? To humble them? To make them rethink? To make them reconsider? No. No, it's, it's made them dig in, double down, and harden their position and come out with this. And thirdly, this blasphemy comes through the lips but from the heart. Well, where did I get that? I got it right from the section. Matthew twelve thirty four, Offspring of, vip- of vipers. What are vipers? Those are snakes that have poison coming out their fangs. Offspring of vipers, how are you able to speak good things, being wicked? Here we go. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So you see, this is not just a stupid thing they say and immediately regret. This is something that's come from their heart. They've worked on this. They've worked their way to this. They stand on this. So it comes out their mouth. And then he says, again, verse 35, The wicked man out of his wicked treasure brings out wicked things. I say to you, every idle word which men will speak, they will repay concerning it an account on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be declared righteous, and by your words you will be declared unrighteous. So they'll give account of those words which, be, which will be seen as having come from their wicked hearts and shown their wicked, disposi- dis- wicked disposition and hardness against God. So you see, that is what the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is. It is the, sec- the settled position, the conclusion of someone who's had full exposure to the person and work of Jesus Christ and has come to the conclusion and announced the conclusion that all the wondrous things that he did, he did by the power of Satan, thus attributing the works of the blessed Holy Spirit to the devil. That's the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about some of the implications that we see. I'd like to talk first about why this sin is so grave, meaning so serious. Why is it so heavy? Why is it so deadly? Why is this singled out? Well, it's not so grave because the Holy Spirit is more glorious than Christ. He says that you might speak a word against the Son of Man and be forgiven, but not against the Holy Spirit. Is that because the Holy Spirit is more glorious than Christ? No. Is it because he's more God than Christ? No. But it's because uh, Paul was one who blasphemed Christ. 
But the Holy Spirit's witness eventually brought him to repentance. But if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is is the, the ultimate person and power who brings us to repentance. And if you poison, listen, if you poison that well, you've got nothing to drink from. If you, it's the Holy Spirit ultimately. Look, you weren't won to Christ by the, the reasoning and arguments of the person who, who led you to Christ, even if he had good arguments and good reasoning. You weren't won by a sermon that I preached, even if it was a faithful sermon. How were you won to Christ? How was I won to Christ? God the Holy Spirit. My God the Holy Spirit. Otherwise, the words are just words. Oh, they're true. Oh, they're from God. But if the Holy Spirit doesn't get them through my dead ears and my hateful hard heart, then they won't do anything for me. So the Holy Spirit must minister to me. But if I take and say that the Holy Spirit himself is Satan, well, then that, I've got nowhere to go. And there's nothing that can reach me. I, I, I've, you know I struggle with an analogy. I've got one that I think is pretty good, but none of them is perfect, but it's pretty good. Imagine a person who says, all truth claims are false. Now, you laugh at that because you immediately see there's a problem there. <laughs> there's a problem there. What's the problem? Well, is that a truth claim? <laughs> well, if it's a true truth claim, then it's a false truth claim. <laughs> because there's one truth claim that isn't false. But, but I want to take that more seriously because people do say that, don't they? Haven't you seen that? Haven't you seen people say that, that, well, they don't believe in absolute truth? And that's what that's saying. All truth claims are false. I don't believe in absolute truth. And, and you know, the joking response is, oh, is that absolutely true? And, and you know, that's cute and all. But, but you know there are people who that is their position, and they're going to stay there. Now, how would you help somebody like that? As a Christian, what do you have to offer anybody? Truth claims. That's all you've got. You've got the truth claims of who God is. You've got the truth claims of who we are. We've got the truth claims of who Jesus is and what he's done, what I need, what he's accomplished, how I can have part of that. Those are all truth claims. But if somebody has taken the position that all truth claims are false... Well, he won't hear anything that I've said, has he? Because he's poisoned the wealth. Do you follow me? Well, but this, this is like that to an infinite degree. This is like that to an infinite degree. When the, the perversion that is involved in attributing the blessed Holy Spirit's works to the devil is a perversion that reflects a reprobate soul that has simply gone too far and for whom there is no way of redemption. As, as the one that I was talking about is, is philosophically suicidal, this is spiritually suicidal. Because if, if the only way to forgiveness is, is where? It's through Christ. That's the only way to forgiveness. And the ultimate witness to Christ is the Holy Spirit. And if I attribute the Holy Spirit to, the Satan, that leaves, to Satan, that leaves no witness to Christ. And if there's no witness to Christ, I can never be forgiven. So that's why I believe this, that this is my best ability to explain why this sin is so grave. And secondly, I want to look, at you with, look with you at what this does not teach me, what this doesn't teach me. So here's a wrong way to come away from considering this. 
for a Christian to say, I've committed this sin, so I must live my life paralyzed by despair and terror. Well, if you view the sin that way, then you have not committed the sin because a person who's committed that sin is settled and untroubled about it. If you abhor it, if you look at it with revulsion and horror and disown it and say, I want no part of that. Why would I do that? I know Jesus is true. I know the Holy Spirit does speak truth only of Jesus. Well, then you haven't committed that. If, if you yearn for God's forgiveness, if you yearn for God, well, then you haven't committed that because that sin is the mark of somebody whose heart is absolutely dead towards God. And if your concern is to be known by God and to know God, well, that's not your heart, is it? Like Jesus says it comes from the heart. So it doesn't teach me as a Christian that I should lock up in despair. And remember, that's what Satan always does. He, he, he wants to get us to, to sin by convincing us that that sin is what we need to do. And as soon as, he do, that, as soon as we Christians do that sin, then what does he do? And you call yourself a Christian. <laughs> and seeks to paralyze us with guilt. Isn't that exactly what he does? This is that trick. Don't fall for that trick. And secondly, though, for anyone to say, ah, I haven't, consen- I haven't committed that sin, so there's nothing to worry about, and I don't need to worry about sin, that would be the wrong conclusion also. Uh, yes, sin is always something to worry about. You say, well, I'm a Christian. Doesn't that mean I don't have to worry about sin? Well, if you're not worried about sin, I would suggest you're not a Christian. Christians do worry about sin. Why? Because we love God. We don't want to shame Him. We don't want to offend Him. We want to be close to Him. We want to adorn our testimony. We want to be testimony for Him. We want to be witnesses for Him. And we learn to hate sin like Jesus hates sin. So if your idea of the gospel is the gospel makes it so you don't have to worry about sin anymore, no, you have misunderstood the gospel. But um, those are things it doesn't teach me. And then finally, what this does teach me. And the first that I want to emphasize very strongly is, listen to me, dear ones, God's not playing. Write that down. Write those words down. God is not playing. So here are people who have seen Jesus day in, day out, heard him, watched him, and they ran out of time. They were already judged. They were still living, still breathing, still pumping blood, but the game was over as far as they were concerned. Why? Because God's not playing. When God lays down a witness to Christ, we must respond. Look, some of you have grown up in church, you've heard the witness to Christ again and again, and you have learned how not to listen to it. And you feel like you've accomplished something good, perhaps. You have not. You've accomplished something terrible. And I want to warn you something. You say, wait a minute, you just relieved my conscience that I haven't committed against the, Holy, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And I may not be a Christian, but I can still be forgiven. Oh, but let me tell you, This blasphemy against the Holy Spirit we should see as being the end of a long path. Where did they start out? Well, they started out, I mean, as we see them in the Gospel of Matthew, when they first hear that Messiah was born, they help Herod know where to go and kill him. And as we progress through Jesus' ministry, everywhere they're hearing him and watching him, they're arguing with him. They're not learning, they're not listening. And so they learned encounter by encounter by encounter to harden their heart against Christ. And what I want to tell you is every time they heard a word of Christ and hardened their heart against it, they took a step down that path that ultimately ended where we're reading about today. There is no part of the path of sin that is a good place to be 
or that leads to a good destination. If you've read the, the, uh, the book of Proverbs, you know this is what Solomon often does. He often talks about something and he, and he says, the th- my three-word summary is consider the end. In other words, this looks fun at the start, but here's where it ends up. You look like it's a good day just to take a nap and not go to work, but where it ends is poverty and disgrace. This woman looks awful sweet and is saying great things to you, but this ends in shame and ruin. You see what I'm saying? And so here, oh, it's not a big deal. I've got, I'm gone to church again. I've heard Jesus preached again. I'm not going to do anything about it again. What could that hurt? Solomon would say, well, consider the end. Consider where that path leads. So you've just learned another exercise in how to harden your heart against the grace of God and against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where does that end? It ends in hopelessness and despair. Every rejected witness of the Spirit is a step down that path. So with all my heart, my counsel is, don't go down that path. With all my heart, my counsel is, get off that path. Repent. Humble yourself. Throw yourself on the mercy of God. Cry out to Christ to save you. We don't know how much longer God's patience is going to last. We're already in extra innings. The truly amazing thing then in summary is not that there is a sin which cannot be forgiven. The truly amazing thing is that there is any sin that can be forgiven. That's the amazing thing. And that's what Jesus has come to do, to save sinners. And that he says that all manner of sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. That should make every one of us say, praise God, praise God. I'm in that. I need that. I have that. I want that. That's the great good news. And if any sin is keeping you from Jesus and it isn't this sin, then you're a fool. Why would you stay from Jesus? That's the most foolish place to be. So like the Pharisees, are you seeing and hearing? Like the Pharisees, are you not learning, not listening? Well, you don't want to end up like the Pharisees, do you? No. So see and learn, hear and listen, repent and believe. And praise God for his marvelous grace. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this sharp living word from and about our Savior. We thank you for the marvelous ministry of the Holy Spirit in attesting him and pointing to him prophetically and miraculously and consistently. We thank you so much for that blessed ministry of the Holy Spirit and the glorious person of Jesus Christ to whom he points. And we who know him just rejoice in him, rejoice in the wondrous salvation that is his and that is ours in him. And we thank you so much for the Holy Spirit without whom we would not see the kingdom of God, we would not enter the kingdom of God, and our hearts would not be open to your word because they are spiritually discerned. And the mind of the flesh does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. We pray for anyone here, one of these children growing up in church, hearing of Christ Sunday after Sunday, doing nothing with what he or she is hearing. We pray that the Holy Spirit will move in those hearts. Or a man and a woman who's come to church often or come to church for the first time and heard of Christ. Oh Lord, please, by your power and your power alone, work in that heart to bring humbling, brokenness, repentance, faith in Jesus Christ. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen.